You fix something. See? Works. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, there we are. So, good to see you. 1 Corinthians 16. Yeah, next, uh, not next week, but the week after, we're going to start our series in the book of Nahum, uh, uh, which is the Old Testament minor prophet, and it's going to be great seeing how God interacts with uh, human being as nations and how God brings blessings and judgments on uh, yeah, political uh, uh, places and people. And it, it's, it's going to be great. It'll be a short series, about three or four sermons, and then we'll crack on with the next series. But that's, that's coming. And, and tonight we have uh, uh, the sort of passage that reminds me what we just sung in Psalm 100, that, that I'm not the ultimate shepherd here. Vic and I are not the ultimate shepherds over churches uh, uh, we would choose, it's very human to desire, and, and a lot of pastors will do this, the desire to pick and choose texts here, Bible verses here, topics there, and, and avoid going like we do, chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the Word of God. Because we get to sections like this, which is all about why people should give offerings and how it should happen, and I, I sort of think, we don't need that. People know, this is awkward. I'm the pastor. No one wants to visit a church and then get told, you know, tonight's sermon is on giving, so can we do the offering again after the sermon? We, we don't want to do that. But, but God is the shepherd of this people, and he puts into his word what we need to hear, in the context we need to hear it, in the order we need to hear it, and so we bend our knee and we go through the scripture verse by verse as is safe to do. So tonight what we're going to see is a pattern of mission giving and mission going. Mission giving from the church and mission going from the church. We're going to see this example, not from the Corinthians. If you've been paying attention at all, or if you've read your book of the first Corinthians, the, the, the Corinthians are never held up as an example for us to emulate what with the incest and the sexual immorality and the, uh, uh, the, the brothel activity and the, the stinginess and the infighting and the, the heresy. They're not the exemplary church, but they're a pretty accurate church for most churches around today, right? Because we, we are, as we've titled this series, we're unsaintly saints, we have been given the new life of Christ, but wherever there's new, new souls being saved out of a pagan world like ours is, there's always going to be a little bit of pagan coming to the church with those souls being saved. And it's the work of God to drive that out of us and make us who we are, saints in Jesus Christ. So they're not the example, but Paul is the example. What he does towards the Corinthians, what he explains to them, and what the other ministers do. So we're going to see reference here, Apollos and Timothy. They're our examples. They give us a great example for what the Christian life ought to look like. And especially through the giving of money, mission giving, and the giving of selves to serve the mission of Christ locally and broadly. The, the mission of going. Mission giving and mission going will be our examples tonight. I, I want you to just reflect back if we can erase our modern uh, inserts into this passage, which are good and helpful, but the big numbers and the little numbers, the chapter and verses, were not in the original text. And if you could imagine just them and the little section headings out of your Bible for a second as you look at it opened on your lap, we have just gone from 1 Corinthians 15 to 1 Corinthians 16. You know maths, you know that's how it works. But, but, but the flow of it feels entirely disjointed. We were just soaring 
in the heights of 1 Corinthians 15 with, with it's kind of like we were on a, we were on a plane, a sightseeing plane or, or, or something like that, and, and we were in a jet going over the, the, the Grand Canyon. We were above the clouds. We could see it all, and, and we could see the sun setting on the other side of the globe. It was amazing, this beautiful view. And then in the next moment, you're hearing the bing, your luggage is ready for collection. Please do not crowd the aisles. Take your blah, blah, blah. It, you go from glory to mundane really quickly. That's what it feels like. If you're reading 1 Corinthians and you go from the glories of, say, like verse 54, when the perishable body puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Or verse 57. Uh, Sorry, 56. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen? Now, concerning the collection of offerings. Bapal. It just feels like an immediate halt, like you've ground and you're back on the tarmac, stuck in taxiing. And, and yet what we, what we need to see is, and of course, I'm the kind of preacher, I just want to stay in 1 Corinthians 15 all day. I don't like 1 Corinthians 16 because it's boring to me. As a sinner, I, I, I'm, when I don't come to it with the, with the spirit ablaze in my heart to see what God has said here, I would rather stay in the big, lofty, impressive, amazing, eschatological kingdom theology But Paul goes from there, the very next verse, to mission giving and functional going to serve the local church. I think the degree to which we understand, the degree to which we have a passion for 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus, and how we've ended that chapter, the fact that anything we do for God because of the resurrection is not in vain. If we really get that, it shows up in how we give. And how we go. And so this is an all too practical step for Paul to take. From the resurrection straight to how the church ought to be giving. And the example of those who are going. We get to this chapter 16 and I'll I'll read it for us now. We're going to go from verse 1 through to 12 before we go any further. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia. So also are you to do, that on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him and help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. May God bless that, the reading of his precious authoritative word among us this evening. 
And of course, you read that and you, you heard it being read and it sounds just a little bit dry, not as exciting as chapter 15, not as amazing as chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and the, the spiritual gifts. But this is, like we said, the functional turning of the gears in any and every church. Those who give and those who go in service for the church. The church is, and I'm sure you've probably, if you're like me, uh, and you've been advocating over these last 18 months or so for the necessity of the gathered saints in worship to be called the church, that we, we can't just keep on doing online stuff. If, if you've sort of been advocating for that, you're probably sick of hearing the church is not a building, it's a people. Right? Um, I, no amens. But uh, I'm sick of hearing that. But it's true. I, I'm not sick of the truth because that is a reality. The church is not simply a building. But it is more than just a people. The church is not just a bunch of people who sign on to a bare minimum statement of faith together and have very little otherwise to do with each other. The church is, of course, a people, but we're a people with a particular corporate, global, and local identity so that it's possible to be the church and not be being the church. That it's true, we, we are not just the building and we are still in the church technically if we are not doing our job, but we are not being the church as we're supposed to be. It's, it's far too simplistic to simply say we're just a people. We are a people with a purpose. Other pictures of the church in, God, in the Word of God is a nation or, or the kingdom. That the church is a spiritual nation, that we don't have borders, and under the kingship of Christ, we're always extending his kingdom, taking dominion for the Lord God through the preaching of the gospel and winning of souls. That's another picture. Or another picture is that the church is an indestructible army, that we have a, a mission objective, we have weapons, which is the word of God, that we have a commander who is Jesus, we have the power, which is the Holy Spirit, and we have a victory that is promised to us. Uh, throughout history, this has been called, those, those Christians who are still on earth are called the church militant. And we are the church who is marching forwards, preaching the gospel, suffering here, shedding our blood here if necessary, but the gates of hell will not stand against the building of Christ in his church. And, and the, the Christians in heaven have historically been called the church triumphant. Those who through death have triumphed and are now in Christ's presence. But we are, we are the church militant. That is a picture from scripture, an army. Another picture of the church is a sheepfold whose shepherd is always adding lost sheep to the fold. The church is also a vineyard whose gardener is always pruning us, John 15, and is always managing us so that we become more fruitful and more growing. The church is also pictured to us as a family whose father is always adopting more children into the family and training the siblings, the, the sons and the daughters, to look after those new children. The church is, also, is, is always on mission. That is that she has a direction. So, so that when we start talking about giving and we start talking about going and serving the church uh, uh, globally, uh, it's put in its order when we realize that the church has a direction to be moving in. We have an objective, a directive from the Lord Jesus Christ so that our giving is serving the mission. And our, our going, if the Lord would so call you to go, is serving the mission. So let's start looking at this from our text, two sort of exemplary sections here, mission giving and mission going. You can see there in verse 1 to 4, the first section talking to us about giving, the offering of the church and how that serves the mission. 
This is an example of New Testament churches' uh, habit. Like we get, a, we get a, a view here on how the early church was gathering their money for paying of their pastors and sending for missions and sending to other churches who were in need and supporting the poor. This is a good uh, uh, picture that, that Paul gives to us. And he says this is a universal thing that he says. He says, I, I directed the churches of Galatia what to do, which is a huge region, bunch of churches. This is just what Paul taught churches to do, what we're going to read. And Gordon Fee, when he uh, comments on this section, he just says, I love how Paul writes. When he's talking about giving, when he's talking about offering, there's no pressure, there's no gimmicks, and there's no emotion, right? He doesn't have somebody at the back really hitting those minor chords, getting people feeling like I want to give, and the, the lights are dropping. We have a little giving sermon just before the real sermon, so you feel extra guilty before we take the offering. He's not doing any of that. He's just speaking like a man with an objective, speaking to people and saying, if you've got money and it's for the Lord, give it. Let's not be stingy. Let's move on from here. His, his fee says, there's no pressure, no gimmicks, no emotion. There was a need to be met. And the Corinthians were capable of playing a role in it, full stop. That's how black and white Paul is here. And I aim to be the same tonight. So in verse 1 we read, Now, concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. When we read here the collection of the saints, this is a particular um, uh, uh, answer to a question they had written to him, it seems, where they had been asking, uh, you know, you had mentioned while you were with us for 18 months, you mentioned about uh, uh, the, the poor Jews in Jerusalem who have become Christians. The church in Jerusalem and Judea was a particularly poor church. Uh, firstly, because it was, it was a city that was just way overpopulated, lots of urban back streets and, and poverty, but also because Agabus had prophesied earlier in the book of Acts that there would be a great famine coming upon Judea. And so it, it was uh, incumbent upon the Gentile churches to gather their funds and send it to Jerusalem to support their, their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so part of what we see in, the, uh, uh, in this section and other letters that he references it, he goes around to many of the churches gathering the money and taking people and then sending it to Jerusalem. So that's what he's, he's speaking about. And they've asked him the sort of question as in, how we ought to raise this money of the offering towards the Jerusalem church? And so he answers with his very practical guidelines. His speaking to them is encouraging them to give generously to a people that they have never met, that they are actually nothing like because they're giving to Jews and they're just ex-pagan Gentiles, and giving to people who have no ability to reward them with glory or honor. In the Corinthian culture, it was, it was actually quite common for people to be generous to, to other people. Like you would give sums and you would do very much like what we, we see today, right? Somebody wants to raise uh, 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 money for a cure or awareness of a cure of some kind. They do a fun run or something like that. And, and they get a big, big check and they write on it uh, from this person to this person. Here, here it is. Well, it was similar like that in Corinth. It would always be with pomp. It would always be with a show. And it was always able to be cashed in. People would give so that they would have a plaque, so that they would have something named after them. Or, or if it was just to individuals, it was so that they would give to them some kind of social honor and glory, and they were expected to do that. And Paul's writing to the Corinthians saying, forget all of it. I'm asking you to give to the saints, to give to the poor, to give to those who you may never meet the side of eternity, whose names, who will never hear your name. There's not going to be a card here with how much you gave and how much thanks they are to honor you. It's God's money that you've got in your bank account. 
He wants to give it from one part of his body to the other part of his body. The right hand holds all the money, gives some of it to the left hand. It's God's money, give it to the other portion of God's body. Lack of glory, lack of honor, at least this side of the resurrection. But they've just been told. All that they do, all of their labor in the Lord is never in vain. So Paul gives these, these very practical uh, steps right here. So we're going to see in verse uh, 2, uh, we're going to see five, did I end up deleting the other one? Five very practical steps for how we ought to be giving in our offering. First of all, it says this, on the first day of every week. So we see here the, pr- the principle of regularity. We will next see the principle of universality, everybody must do it. Proportionality, that is that everybody should give in proportion to their earnings. Then we will see uh, uh, how that we should be giving systematically and that we should be giving freely. So, number one, regularly. He says on the first day of every week, you should be putting, putting money aside. He says this because uh, uh, the first day of the week, Sunday, we call it, the, the Greeks called it Sunday. They, they would gather, and, and that became the Christian habit of gathering. The Sunday was the gathering, as opposed to the, the, the Jewish Saturday. And they would do that because it was a, a weekly commemoration of the Lord's resurrection. That, that's why that was the day of gathering. Jesus rose on a Sunday. He appeared to us on a Sunday. He appeared again to them on a Sunday. He would gather with them on a Sunday. He taught them that principle. And the Holy Spirit fell in Pentecost on a Sunday. All throughout the book of Acts, you start seeing them speak of the first day of the week they gather, the first day of the week they gather, and then it's eventually just called the Lord's Day, the day that God took, made his own, and commemorated his rest from saving work. And so the Christians gathered on the first day of the week, and he says, basically Sunday at church, bring in your money every week. Do it something that is regular, because regularity in giving, when it's a scheduled habit, which is my definition for discipline, a scheduled good habit is really good. It's a very good way of dealing regular blows to our money-loving, idol-making hearts. It's like, it's like a car service. I, I was in uni. I didn't have much money. I would wait until it was grinding at every red light uh, before I would take my car in for a service. And it wasn't wise, but it was like a 75 laser, something like that. It wasn't a sanctified vehicle. So it wasn't mu- worth much of my money. But, but, but you know, if, if you're a car owner, that, that, that is much healthier for the car if you take it for regular top-ups, regular check-ins, and, and uh, uh, rather than waiting a long time and, and going and busting out these huge bills, or, or similarly with running. You could do a 200-kilometer ultramarathon at the end of every year, or you could average that out, and it will be much better for your cardiorespiratory uh, uh, cardio system and your body and your muscles and your knees, and you won't perish uh, two kilometers in if you, do, if you separate that out and do a couple of kilometers every day. And the same is, is with this, that this discipline of giving should be done regularly, so that we can do, do, do the regular work of putting aside our idols to money. We can make it a regular uh, a habit of giving away of that which we love so much to the purpose of the Lord. So he says, regularly on the first day of the week. The second principle, he says, is the universe, universality. He says in verse 2, on the first day of every week, let each of you. Other versions might say, every one of you, or let each one of you. The, the Greek is very specific. It's every single person. He doesn't say, let the, the top 20% income earners do the giving. 
He doesn't say, pick the three, five richest families and make them do the giving. He doesn't say that those who uh, are, uh, are comparatively throw out the spectrum of income and anyone you know, left of this side doesn't have to give and every, anybody above this, they should be doing the giving. Rather, he says every single person should be doing the giving. Let no one be left out of this blessing. This ability. We don't come into church and only some portion of us, only the good singers, give praise. We don't come in and, and only the, the great uh, uh, speakers, encouragers, and conversationists get to fellowship after church. We, we all come together and whatever we have to give, we are all in the habit and practice of giving to the Lord. And so it is with our money. Let every single one of you come together with what you are able to give. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he writes to them again about this process. And he writes to them saying, giving to them the example of the Macedonians. Those churches in Philippi and Thessalonica. He actually says that they, I didn't expect them to give to this. I didn't ask them to give to the Jews because they were so poor and they already have the burden of having to support their elders. So I, I bypassed them. But I could not stop them from giving. And, and above and beyond and out of their poverty, they have given a great offering to go to their brothers and sisters. And, and he emulates them as an example that, that every Christian, every family, every individual has been blessed by God enough to contribute and obey his commands of generosity. The generosity of the body should represent the whole body. You will have that sibling, that friend, or it's you, but you, might, you have that friend who wants to sign the bottom of the birthday card who did not contribute to the gift, right? That you, you, you're there, and, and, and the same system is going on. The, the church of Corinth is going to give a gift to the church in Jerusalem, but there's a bunch in the church of Corinth that are just curtailing it in on the, on the back of the, the generous other people in the church of Corinth, but there's no specific names. All you know is that the church of Corinth gives it, and, and you get some of that thanks, that praise, you sign at the bottom of the card when you didn't have to give. What Paul is saying is that the, the payment of the ministers, the payment of missionaries, the meeting of needs, when it comes from a church body, it should be representing the whole church body, not the generosity of a few. And it really hits our, our uh, uh, sort of mindset today that is so often more socialist than biblical, which would say that the privileged, who by no hard work of their own, the, the privileged who should feel pretty guilty for having more than me, they should do the paying, which will both help the poor and pay off the rich person's privileged debt. Reparations. Uh, they say this, that, and their focusing here is on the giving of other people, and the standard is horizontal. Like, like you get your standard for how much you give by how much other, others have, by how much others give. But what Paul is showing to us is he's saying, let's make it a regular habit of discipline in giving and let's make it universal. Let every single person do the giving because our, our, our motivation is not comparison. Our motivation is not how much others are giving. Our motivation is the good, gracious heart of God that has been showed to us in Jesus Christ. Our giving is Godward. It is ultimately to the Lord Jesus and not ultimately to other people. And our standard is what he next says. So our standard is not trying to one-up other people or, or anything like that. Our standard is what he says next in verse 2. We will not take this long on every, every verse. 
But the next thing he says, so he says, on the first day of every week, make sure every one of you is doing it. And then he says, uh, put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Or in other words, other translations might say, in accordance with how much you make. As goes your prosperity, so should go your ability to give. So your standard for giving is not what other people are giving. Your standard for giving is, when we ask, how much do I give? How much is too much? Or usually we're asking, how much do I get to, to keep and still get to heaven and not get under the punishment of God? How much do I get to keep and he won't take away what I already have? It's the wrong questions, isn't it? The, the question that we should be asking is, does Scripture give to me a, a helpful guideline so that I know what would probably be an ungodly amount? How much, so that I can know what is stinginess? Does God give to me some kind of objective standard so that I should aim to surpass that in generosity? This will also help us answer the question, do Christians tithe? Look in the Old Testament. Maybe even abused with that, smashed over the head with that by a pastor in a real shiny suit in the past that you must bring your tithe into the storehouse and God will double it up, run it over, pour it over you, whatever, whatever the saying is. Christians, let me just answer this one, do Christians tithe? Must Christians obey the Old Testament pattern of tithing? And the answer is no. The, the Old Testament uh, system was set up so that uh, you would give, now a tithe is 10%, that, that's what it means, a tenth. And people think that the Jews used to give a forced 10% to the work of God and would keep 90. That's what we should do. It's law for us. That is mistaken for two reasons. First of all, because that was part of a covenantal law that was for the nation of Israel specifically. And secondly, because they didn't give 10%. They gave 10% to the temple and its work so that it would go to the priests and the sacrifices and things like that. So there's your, there's your tithe, your 10%. And then there was an additional 10% that they would give to fund all of their annual feasts and festivities, right? the party fund. And then they would also give an extra 10% per year for the, the supporting of the poor within Israel. So you're actually looking at about a 30 to 33% uh, uh, income tax or offering tithe in the Old Testament. And then when you say that, a lot of people sort of try to shirk back. Yeah, you know what? Maybe it's not binding for us, I don't think. Now that I, I, I rerun the, the mass, the reality is that's not our covenant. That's, that's guidelines given to others. But it does show to us uh, a, a, helpful, a helpful guideline. Uh, they were a nation. It, it doesn't all carry over. You don't have to tithe but it may be a helpful starting place to budget for it, to start at 10%. To say to the work of God, you know, we all pay taxes, we all, all you know, give our Medicare levy and whatnot, we, we pay that, like the Jews did, I guess. But to the, go to the temple, the work of God in the world, a 10% is at least a, a helpful guideline. But Paul says, what is binding for the Christian is proportionate giving. Proportionate givings means, as God blesses you with income, so your, so your giving increases. And this leaves room for your giving decreasing. That maybe you're in a season of bankruptcy, something took your business by surprise, or, or you're in a season where you need to uh, put more into medical bills or, or the, the type, or you have a family member that you need to support. It, it leaves room for uh, uh, giving less in certain seasons because it is to be given in proportion to our blessings. This encourages, though, generosity. Not scraping out as little as possible, but giving generously as God has generously given to us. In other words, 
our lifestyle does not have to follow our income. Many Christians, it's not uncommon in, in our day and age, uh, are able to uh, uh, go to uni, get a trade, and you're always poor there, right? Unless your parents are feeding you gold from birth. You're always a poor uni student. You're always a poor tradesman, like six bucks an hour minus benefits or whatever. Uh, you're always poor. You're always a dodgy car in uni. You're always struggling with rent there. And then a lot of, a lot of Christians, this is common, will, will then kind of get the grad job or sort of graduate and, and get the, the income that they don't know what to do with. They've got this six-figure salary or, or five-figure salary that, that is not flipping burgers and giving them six bucks. And, and they're, they're, they've got a lot more than what they are healthily or wisely able to, uh, to do with. And as they make all of this, make this cash, they, they sort of start to assume, if God has given me this much, I should use that much. If God has given me this much, I should utilize all of that in my life. And, and that's where the error is. Wesley used to have this principle for his life when he was poor. He said that he, he capped his lifestyle. He tried not to be uh, uh, overtly flashy. He tried not to be uh, too irresponsible with his family. But that there would be a, a safe sort of uh, stability where the family's fed, where the bills are paid, where there's savings and there's, there's wise things to fall back on and there's room in my budget for being uh, generous on the spot. But that whatever income he started to make above that, would not drag up, naturally it happens, would not accidentally, incrementally drag up his lifestyle, but he would stay at this capped lifestyle and all income that came in, and by golly, it came in for Wesley. As his books and his hymns and his sermons all started to be used, money would flow to him. But he's an example that we as Christians are not meant to be sponges. We're meant to be pipelines. That we would, we would sort of cap up what lifestyle we can comfortably, sacrificially, and responsibly live for those we're taking care of. And then anything above that goes right on past us. We're a pipeline. It comes to us so that we can pass it on. We are conduits, not sponges. John Piper says very helpfully, it is not a sin to have a six- and seven-figure salary. In fact, more people than you realize through a couple of promotions, good hard work, and a solid degree may, may sit somewhere on a, on a eighty dollars to $100,000, $150,000 uh, dollar a year job. It's, it's not that uncommon. There's a six and even seven-figure salary is, is not sin, but a six and seven-figure lifestyle that is reflecting these huge numbers, massive flashiness is sin. We should find ourselves not judging others, but looking at our own heart, our own budgets, our own income, and giving proportionately. God blessings pour out, we pass them on to those in need. Which leads us to the next point, he says in verse 2, that he says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should put aside and store up as he prospers. This is speaking to not, not the amount now, but the how you do it. It's the, the systematic uh, way of, of, uh, of giving. He's not saying on the first day of every week, come in and whatever you've got on you, chuck it up. He's not saying that Sunday morning, start thinking about what you want to give to the Lord as you're driving to church. He's saying, store it up, save it up. In other words, put it into the family budget before the giving time comes. Assess the budget, see what you can cut out, see how we should responsibly use what we have and, and put into the budget. It's not emergency giving, it's not done under compulsion, it's none of that. It's ordered, intentional, 
budgeted, disciplined money set aside for the Lord and his purposes. Because don't we all know that if we just rely on the generosity of the moment, we always have a reason not to give. If we put it into our budget, then we will find ourselves as regular doing that as we are with the mortgage, as we are with the rent, as we are with the phone bills, because it's in the budget. And then lastly, he says, do it that way, end of verse 2, so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, he wants this to be done freely. He doesn't want to be big Uncle Apostle Paul walking through the aisles with his big money offering bag, poking people, prodding them, reminding them that he told them six months ago he was coming, where's your six months worth of giving? He doesn't want to do it under compulsion. He wants it, as he says in 2 Corinthians 8, to be free, to be cheerful. He doesn't want them to be kids that he has to tell over and over, give something to the needy brothers. He wants them before the Lord to be mature, to be thinking about this, to be well taught on it so that they are not immature and childlike and have, when he comes, a prepared amount already to give because they've been putting it regularly, systematically, universally, proportionately away for the Lord. That is the pattern for giving in the New Testament. So here we see this cheerful giving outlined in very practical steps by Paul, mission giving. And then we see mission going. Verse 5 through to verse 12, we we see sort of this, uh, it's the end of the passage now, and he's just throwing together greetings to people and reminders about things, and and he's telling them where he's planning to travel and when he's hoping to come to them, and it might be hard to sort of pull out from this some, some sermon points, but we'll do it, and we'll do it well, I think, us together, team working. What we see is this example that Paul has given about giving, and now he's showing us this this amazing example of going, of serving the church with life. So we're going to see Paul, we're going to see Timothy, and we're going to see Apollos. Over in verse 5, he talks about his plans to visit them after going through Macedonia, because he wants to pass through there but stay with the Corinthians so that they may help him on his journey. And then he wants to see them so that he may bless them and then go on from them after Ephesus. So in these these two, two areas, Paul is serving sacrificially. In Corinth, he wants to serve and bless them. And in Ephesus, he wants to serve and bless them. We'll look at them both. He doesn't want to simply pass through Corinth. He said this, you know, come in like a hotel, get housed, get fed, and then check out by 10 a.m. He doesn't just want to use them as the port city that they are. He wants to be among them to bless them, grow them, teach them, encourage them, and be filled by them in the grace of God. And especially, he says, he wants to give them the opportunity of partaking in his mission. Because I'm going to come to you so that you can help me on my mission so that you have the blessing and you're welcome in advance of giving to the mission that I'm going on, of, of sending me away with, with food and, and clothing and, and money and the, the, the needs that I will have for the mission because not everybody is sent. Not everybody. Don't, don't get into the silly mindset that you're a real Christian if you go to the mission field and then only. That you're a real Christian if you serve the church through, uh, through vocational ministerial work. That's not the case. You are a member of the body, an organ in this body of Christ, as much as the going mouth of Paul. And he wants to give them the opportunity of partaking in missions by giving while he is doing the going. But anyway, he says that to Corinth. And look at uh, verses 8 and 9. He speaks about his plans regarding Ephesus. 
He says, I'm going to come to you after the winter, um, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, that is, through the winter, uh, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and I love this about Paul, and there are many adversaries. I'm strapping up my knuckles, I'm sharpening the blades, because there's lots of fools getting in the ring in Ephesus, I just can't come. I'm stuck here, the fight is thick. And what he's referencing, this wide door of opportunity with all of these adversaries, he's referencing, I, I believe, what Acts chapter 19 tells us about. When Paul is in Ephesus, because he's writing the Corinthian letter from Ephesus, he's there and he's preaching and he's seeing masses of pagans who have been involved in the dark arts and worshipping of idols, he's seeing them converted en masse. He's seeing amazing work done for the Lord. But there's this point in uh, Acts chapter 19 where he realizes that a lot of the churches still have all of their black magic books in the trunk of their car. Like they're still using these things, in, 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 uh, integrating it into Christianity. And so he gets them to come together, and there is, a little bit culty, but it's Paul, so we'll let him get away with it, an enormous public book burning. Pretty cool. We should do that one day. Uh, everybody who's come from terrible background churches, you've got heretical books, bring them, we'll burn them, Hope Church, book burning. Again, I said a little bit culty, but Paul did it. And all of these black magic books that would, that would be used by the seances and the mediums and the witches and the wizards were brought together and burned publicly. And, and what continued to grow was this turning from the worshipping of false idols to Jesus, so much so that the entire economy of Ephesus was altered was flipped, not through social attempts, not through legislation in the parliament, but through the proclamation of the gospel, culture could not help but be shaken. And these guys who made all of their enormous wealth off of forming little silver idols and selling it to the dummies who would worship them, started going broke because no one was buying it anymore. There's no market for idols in Ephesus anymore. And so they get very annoyed and they start stirring up this huge riot is how it climaxes. This is why Paul ends up leaving Ephesus is because they stir up this huge riot and they're chanting in the streets and they're, they're carrying these Christian leaders on their shoulders and they throw them down at the courtroom and they beg for their death and luckily the, the proconsul, the, the judge, dis, uh, you know, dissipates the, the assembly. But that is happening in Ephesus, and, 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 and the, the heat is rising, and Paul is saying, i got to stay, this is where I can be effective. And here's where I think we can see the example for us. Paul did not ask the Corinthians to give what would make them comfortable. He did not ask for obedience and generosity that keeps them unsacrificed and comfortable. He doesn't ask for convenience. Neither does he show us an example of the Christian life that, that finds places to minister, conversations to have, and things to talk about that keep him as safe as possible. He doesn't show us a Christianity that, that tries to toe the line on the safest middle road possible, but where the fighting was the fiercest, there was Paul proclaiming Christ. And so we need to see that, that in the giving, we're not being asked for convenience. We're being asked for missional generosity because souls need to be saved. And in this world, things require money. And he's asking and he's showing the example that he will be going, doing his part on the giving. He's giving his body. He's giving his, his life. This is why he said in chapter 15 that, that he's doing spiritual battle with wild beasts. 
He's got pagan sorcerers with his name on their wuji board praying and cursing him. Paul is an example for us of not finding convenience and towing the line, but finding where I may be the most effective for the Lord. Maybe that's in giving. Maybe that's in going. And we see the same thing in Timothy and Apollos. We see in verse uh, 10 and 11 here. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. A little bit of timeline context here. Paul had been in Ephesus and sent Timothy through Macedonia to go to Corinth. And then he got word after he sent Timothy about all these questions from the Corinthians. So he sends the letter in the hands of some brothers to go directly to Corinth. And he's expecting that the letter will get there before Timothy gets there. And he's warning them. He's encouraging them. He's asking them, please, when Timothy gets there, labored from his journey, tired from his work, honor him. Put him at rest. Don't do what you've been doing to me and accept accusations and slander against this pastor. Receive him. Honor him. For we know, well, he just wrote in chapter 19 of 1 Corinthians, that those, that the, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. If the life is spent not in income earning but Christ proclaiming, then those who are proclaimed Christ too should offer and give for those men to make a living. And then he, of course, references Apollos here, another great example. Not so much because of what he does, but because of the heart he has towards Paul. It says, now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, right? So, so the, the, the ones carrying the letter, I strongly urged Apollos to go to, the, to go to you with them. Now, we read that without context. It doesn't really sound like any point to preach on. But do you remember chapter 1, 2, and 3? Do you remember that this church kept having factional parties among them, and lots of them disliked Paul, lots of them loved Apollos? And Paul now, with this no sense of political drive, no sense of ego, no sense of pride, he just says, I begged and tried to convince Apollos, who, humanly speaking, Christian leaders would, would try and keep the competition away from the church. Don't listen to that guy. Don't podcast that church. Don't listen to those YouTubes. You'll, you'll find out there's better preachers than me. I don't like that. I happily admit that there's one or two preachers that are better than me. But Paul is, is begging. He didn't just mess in, uh, you know, mention it. He begged. Apollos, go to them. Show to them that we're of one heart. Go, use your amazing preaching gift among them. They used to call him silver-tongued Apollos. But Apollos couldn't. It wasn't because he disliked Paul or disliked the Corinthians. It's because he himself was busy in work. And so he says that he was not at all in his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. What an amazing brotherhood that we see between Paul and Apollos here, that while the people wanted a fight, wanted factional empire building, these brothers are one in kingdom preaching. And so whether it is giving of our money or whether it is the giving of our life to the mission field, I pray that you would go before the Lord and in the amount that you give to the kingdom and the amount that you, you go to the field, pray about it. Ask the Lord to put on your heart what he would call you to sacrifice. The kingdom makes no great advances because everybody stayed in their comfortable churches. 
The church at every point of its expansion has done so because men and women inflamed by the Spirit in love with the gospel and burning for those that are going to hell would set their mind in, in enormous funding of missions or in enormous going of church service and Christ's proclamation. I want to also just leave a, a, a point here, a point of encouragement, point of exhortation, that surely somebody in this room, surely some people within this church who, who love the gospel and the word of God so much, surely you have the drive, the desire that little fire within you to go to the unreached peoples. Learn another language. Labor with people who do not look like you, but who serve the same Christ and preach your heart out, dying on a mission field if God so calls it. Surely there's, there's future missionaries here. Surely there's, there's, there's future church plants and missionaries sent to the far reaches of the globe and especially the Asia-Pacific areas in our backyard. Surely there's some people going who are here tonight and just need God to pluck you from your slumber. That now you would be getting ready through giving and now getting ready through learning and developing and evangelizing so that God can send you as a missionary. Would you consider it? Would you pray over the word of God and would you weigh up the eternal ramifications of this? And so in closing, we see that in every independent church, even though we're independent, even though we're local, we are not disconnected. The churches, every church, including this church, we, we owe, we are connected to the churches who provided us with the missionary that planted this church. So it was with the Corinthians. They owed it to the, minister, the ministers who they benefited from, like Paul. They, they owed it to the ministers who served them, Timothy. They owed it to other churches in need, the, the Jews, the Jerusalem church. And they owed it to those who were in need, the poverty, the, the poverty-stricken other churches. They owed it to those who were being sent out from them, which is what he references the brothers who are coming back to Paul from the, book of, uh, from the, ch uh, the church of Corinth. We're not excluded in this church. We, we have a missionary that we've sent out, an entire family, we, we speak of them, that, that are laboring full-time on the mission field. We have other churches that we are in band together with that we may be called on at certain times to help to send people to or send funds to. We have other churches who now have the pastor who planted our church and we should see them as brothers and sisters in the gospel. There is no greater joy than to be made one with Christ and then to be used by him to proclaim him to others through both our giving and our going. And so I want to I end, end on this point, that if you're a person in this room tonight, if you're a, an eternal soul that is still bound up and under your sin, that, that if all of this speak of mission and serving Christ is in fact foreign to you because you live a life that is about your own glory, your own riches, your own inheritance, your own uh, uh, name-building, empire-striving, if, if that's you, then you have not met Jesus and Jesus is in the habit of crushing enemies. That if you want to set up in his world a kingdom to yourself, you will not succeed. You will at least, even if in this life you have great success, you will meet Christ in death. And there he will judge you for your sins. So don't, don't hear me asking for any of your money. If you're an unsaved person in the room tonight, you get one thing away, hear this. Are you a sinner? Have you sinned in your life? And if so... Bring that sin to Jesus because without doing so, he will find it out and punish you for eternity. But bring it to him in repentance and in faith, knowing that he died on the cross 
for your sin as the greatest act of generosity. The greatest act of going and serving Jesus, the Lord God, died for you. Died so that you can be forgiven, welcomed into the family, into the fold, into the kingdom, into the church, into his very own body. Let's pray. Father God, the examples that we have in Scripture are amazing. The examples that we have in Scripture are, in fact, a great rebuke to us who, who try so often when we're not rebuked by your word and stirred on by your spirit, we, we try to do as little as possible and keep on making it. Lord, I pray that you would give to every single one of us, no matter how much we've given in the past, no matter how much we've done in the past, would you give to every one of us a burning desire to give and do more? Because still as we speak, billions are outside of Christ. Lord, I pray that the, the urgency of the mission, the intensity of the need, the size and scope of the need would drive us into functional, practical ways of serving your mission through giving or through going. Would you, would you awaken people that you will call to the mission field? Tonight, Lord, use this sermon to begin in them a process of preparation for missionary life. And for others, Lord, would you, would you continue to work in us the, the, the toppling of the idol of comfort and money? And would you make us a generous people that are cheerful in our giving? And ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would save souls, that if anybody is in this room who has not bent the knee to Christ's lordship, that has not brought their soul to him for forgiveness, Lord, would you bring them into this glorious covenant that you have made through Jesus? Would their sins be forgiven freely and fully? And would you bless them and bless us by adding them to our number of our family in this fold? And everybody with one great joyful voice said, amen, amen. amen.